Hi, everybody. I'm Ted Price from Insomniac Games. Welcome to Season 2 of the Game Maker's Notebook. For this first episode, I got a really cool opportunity to interview one of my favorite people around, Brian Intihar. Brian is a teammate of mine at Insomniac Games, and he's the creative director of Marvel's Spider-Man. We recorded this episode on stage at DICE 2019, and what I really enjoyed was getting to put Brian on the hot seat in front of a live audience. During our discussion, Brian talks about his journey from journalist to creative director on one of the biggest games of 2018. He also shares his perspective on what it takes to be a successful creative director. Welcome to the Game Makers Notebook, a podcast featuring a series of in-depth one-on-one conversations between game makers providing a thoughtful, intimate perspective on the business and craft of interactive entertainment. The Game Makers Notebook is presented by the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, a member-driven organization dedicated to the recognition and advancement of interactive entertainment. Thank you, everybody, for being here and joining us. Hi, Ted. Hi, Brian. How's it going? <laughs> it's great. It's so, great. We spend a lot of time together. A lot of time together. And, and we, we talk about a lot of you know, fun things, and we figured yes. uh, for a, hopefully a unique version of Game Maker's Notebook, we would share some of Brian's experiences in what I think is a very unique journey into the creative director position of one of the biggest titles of last year. So, but first I wanna just talk about DICE. Okay. Because here, this is really special for us. DICE is one of my favorite conferences. Uh, how many DICEs have you been to? This is my second one. The first one was four years ago, just when we like were thinking about that one, that guy. Cool. Yeah, so it's kind of kind of full circle here for me. And so when you come to DICE, are there, are there certain people that you always look for and you want to talk to? I mean, yeah, I just look, see, probably want to seek out the people love the games I love to play. So I, you know, luckily, like, being at Insomniac, we have get to meet so many different developers. I've met a lot of these people before, but, like, this morning, Amy Henning, I, you know, someone who I've looked up to for years, came to, up to me this morning and said how proud she was of me about Spider-Man and... To me, that's like, that's like, doesn't get much better than that. So to see people I've looked up to for so many years be able to play our game and think it's pretty good, I mean, it's just a, like I've said it, this project has been surreal for so long, and just that kind of just adds to it. That's great. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's actually, I think, what all of us are here for generally, is to interact with peers and to share experiences yeah. and ideas. Yeah, like I don't really believe I'm like here. Like, I'm like, what? Like I, you know, almost 20 years ago, I was working at GameStop. I was actually software, et cetera, back then. And I remember I happened to be working that one day and this uh, journalist came in and we were talking about games and he's like, you know, you really, you know your stuff. Would you ever want to write for our magazine? And I was like, oh, no, I'm, I'm in college. I'm going to go to get my uh, master's in uh, psychology and eventually become a clinical psychologist. Well, that stopped and then, you know, fast forward almost 20 years now, I'm doing this, so it's just been crazy. Well, let's, let's go back. Okay, so you All were right. working at GameStop. Yeah. So you were selling games. You yep. were ex- selling people on games. Was there one game in particular that you really enjoyed promoting? Uh, you know what? Yes. Uh, it was WrestleMania, uh, WCW, NW Revenge, because we would get like a little bit of like bonuses if we had a lot of pre-orders. <laughs> and for some reason, the wrestling games on the Nintendo 64 were super popular. So we actually used to create our own POP. We used to take things like out of video game magazines and create our own POP so people could like say it's coming out and we would get pre-orders before it was even the system. And yeah, that's it's one thing I just remember, like we literally created like our own like Gorilla product. Yeah. It was crazy, yeah. That's it was it was just 
it's like you talk about being in the right place at the right time and just being working that day. I remember it was the summer before my senior year of college and uh, that writer had come in and we just started talking and I remember like three months after I'd taken some of my graduate entrance exams and waiting to hear back from colleges um, whether I was gonna go to next, I just woke up in the middle of the night and I remember going, I just, I need to do something fun from the last semester and I, I actually emailed that, that guy and he, he said, yeah, come. And so for my last, um, my last semester in college, I actually did my senior thesis, one class, and I did this internship. And then like three months into it, I said, I'm, I'm not gonna go to grad school, I'm gonna do this full time. I literally was studying for my last college final on my way home from my first E3. That's a, that was a faithful <laughs> step. So, yes. so was, when did you join EGM? I joined EGM in 2003. Yeah, so I actually moved out to LA for, uh, for about seven months and was freelancing, did a little bit of PR, and then EGM was relocating from Illinois to San Francisco. And through a friend of a friend of a friend, I got my resume and flew up. And in January, I think, of 2003, that's when I started. And who's Fragile Eagle? Uh, Fragile Eagle, that is a, so uh, about two years before I left for Insomniac, uh, um, Ziff Davis, who owned EGM, started picking up a lot of online stuff. So we started oneup.com. We also started podcasting. And I was on a sports podcast. And somehow, as you know, I get a little worked up and emotional, and I would get, like if anybody ever said anything negative about something we said, I would get all worked up. And one of the viewer, listeners called, God, Brian's so fragile. And then they thought I was actually, uh, I really liked the Madden football game, so they thought I was actually being paid by EA to say great things, so they called it Fragile E-A-G-E-L. So that's, what, that's where it started, and uh, I wasn't, obviously. And uh, it just took off from there. I haven't heard that in a long time, so thanks for bringing that up. You're welcome, you know, they're here to embarrass you. So. What, what, how would you compare games journalism, and I know we're gonna talk about games, I promise, but games journalism, since you've been there, you've been reporting on games, reviewing games, how has it changed today versus when you were working there? Well, when I was there, it was very much, um, I call it like classic games journalism, where it was more about like playing a game for previews and cover stories and reviews. There wasn't a ton of like investigative journalism. I mean, uh, I think when Kotaku was just sites like Kotaku were just starting. And as 1UP started to build up, we saw more people like going after stories, uh, going after, the, asking the question why, 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 why? And uh, that has just kept getting bigger and you're seeing much, um, just much deeper stories, really interviewing a lot of different people. I think there's some, been some great, great stories over the years and I think that's the biggest thing is just people asking the question why and digging into why certain decisions were made why a game got canceled, why it got greenlit, why this deal got made. So I just think that's really changed over the last few years for me. So now when we get interviewed for a story, it's, I feel it's different. Like, I, I don't know if just, I'm always worried I might say something different because it may become like a big headline, but I just don't, I remember I wasn't doing those kind of stories when I was a journalist. Do, well, having that background, do you find that having been a game journalist, you can look more objectively at the content that you're helping create? Is that, is that a real, is that a strength going from game, game journalism into game development? I mean, I definitely think that, you know, when I first started at Insomniac, I was, you know, offering the dev team, because I was starting on the community side. My first year was I was the community manager for Resistance 2, and I was trying to look at it through the lens of a possible, like, someone reviewing the game, right? And giving some insight. And I still think to this day, I, when we think about features for the game or 
Um, I still look at it through a little bit of a media lens, but I don't think it drives me, or I just think it's just another perspective to look at a, at a product that we're working on. So it's not the be all end all, it's just one piece, one, one perspective that we can have when developing the game. Got it. So what, what actually drove you to go from journalism to games? What was, what was that moment <sighs> that, where you said, I need to do something different? So, oh, uh, so a, couple, a couple of reasons. Uh, first off, I was really lucky to, um, at EGM, we, we were one of the biggest magazines and we got to go around the world to visit different studios, which was awesome. Like, I got to go to Japan, Canada, all over the US. So I got to visit a lot of different studios and as I'd been doing it, I just started to ask myself the question, like, would I ever want to do this? Like, make a game? Like, I write about it. Could, could I make it? Truth is, I had a lot to learn. But, um, and then what, truthfully, is uh, as if Davis was going through some rebuilding, I actually got passed up for a promotion. Um, and that's, around that same time, my grandfather got sick. And I remember um, just being at a crossroads, and I was actually flying home, basically, say goodbye to my grandfather because I knew he was going to pass away soon and I just had a, I was actually reading a Game Informer with Resistance 2 in the cover, coincidentally, and I just had this moment of like, I think it's time to, to, to try it. If I'm, and you know, so I went home and um, I came back and I said, I'm going to see. So I actually called Ryan Schneider, who we know very well at Insomniac, and uh, I said, hey, do you have anything available? And he's like, how soon can you be here for an interview? So within 48 hours, I was on a plane. And by the time I got back, and I was actually, um, I think I was at a GDC where um, I was having uh, lunch with somebody and I got, gave me the call saying, you got the job. So I feel I've been very fortunate and been in the right place at the right time uh, throughout my entire career. So yeah, it just felt like the right time and I wanted to see, I could write about it, could I make it? And then when I got there, ooh, did I learn a couple things. Well, what surprised you the most about making that transition from journalism to making games? It's, it's the most, it feels like the most complicated thing you could ever put together. It's just, there are so many moving pieces that you just don't think about um, when you're just a consumer or a journalist. Um, there's so, so many factors that go into making something great, whether it's the gameplay, whether it's the visual design, whether it's the story, all the above. And uh, to see that many people working in some way unison to get it done on time, um, no bugs, and at the end of the day, a high quality. Just, it's abs it amazes me every single day. It doesn't matter how small or big the game is, it's just the unbelievable coordination and then having somebody at the top who has a vision for something great and looking up that person going, hey, we know it's gonna be a bumpy ride, but we're gonna get there at the end. Right. I mean, you were the, I mean, you were the, when I first got there, you were the creative director on Resistance 2 and like, right. just looking at what you went through and just, you know, it's a very, it's an up and down process, you know? But I don't think you understand until you're actually sitting in that chair. That's true, yeah. I, I think that, that was the thing that surprised me the most was, it's a really emotional, like it's a very emotional experience of being a creative director. I don't, I don't think I've ever gone through anything like that before, well, just the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. Well, okay, so why? Why is it emotional for you? Because it's super personal. Because in some ways I feel like people are saying, well, I don't like, uh, if they don't like the game, I don't like you. And I think part of that is, um, you know, I had never been a creative director before, you know, I came from a production background and I felt like I, I learned a lot throughout the years from all the people in Somac, but like, you know, could I really, really do the job? Did I have a vision that people could believe in? Would they believe in somebody who used to be the project manager? Um, you know, or the, I just, there were so many different factors and there's, 
So also, there's so many talented people in Somniac. Was I the right person for the job? And um, it, like I said, from that day one till we even shipped, that in that morning those reviews came out. You're you're questioning a little bit, but part of me is like, is that just part of it? Is that just what makes if you can kind of have that uncertainty that kind of drives you forward to keep going every day, that perseverance? So. Um, I almost worried like if I thought I could just do it and was like super confident, it wouldn't be as good at the end of the day. So um, like I said, it's just a, it's an absolute emotional roller coaster and uh, I owe my wife everything because she helps me get through it every day. And then every, obviously everybody in Somniac, Sony and obviously Marvel was huge. So what do you think the difference is between when you started in terms of taking criticism, when you started <laughs> as a creative director versus the end of production? I think you. Uh, for you, really I mean, because you. you well, uh, inst emotions, my, instantly. Right? So. Oh, okay. Uh, they don't like it. Uh, Ted, find somebody else to replace me. Like that would instantly be my first reaction. Like uh, they're just gonna get rid of me. He's not good enough. He's what a mistake we made. And then that slowly goes away over time. And then you have a spike of it coming back. You're like, oh, this build wasn't very good, or the story didn't click, or the you know this part of the mechanics aren't good. And then you go back to that. Um, so I just think it's understanding the, the waves of, of the volatility of, of development. I think a joke I like to make, sort of a joke, but I kind of feel like, I feel like 90% of development is like unbelievably difficult, nerve wracking, depressing, but there's 10% of it that is like the most amazing thing you could ever experience. And that 10% makes up for that other 90%. And so how would you describe those moments? What, what specifically are those moments in that 10% that make you want to come back every day and just go through it again? It's uh, when you, the first time you swing around the city and you're like, I feel like when I was a little kid with my Spider-Man action figure, having him pretend swing through a department store from clothes rack to clothes rack, when I literally felt like I now was Spider-Man. Or when I was watching the last, um, one of the last cutscenes of, of Spider-Man and some of the sound effects were still a little broken and the lighting was busted, but the narrative and the design were coming together and I was like, we did it. Like we talked a lot about this idea of very early on making something that plays like a Marvel movie feels. And I was like, we did it. And all the blood, sweat and tears and the concerns about the story working, they all went away that moment. Like, I don't, I remember the tough times, but that one moment made up for all of that and realizing that that was just part of the process, part of the process. I know people, it's just part of the experience and I relish those times as much as I relish the, the great times as well. It, it makes the, the good parts even better, I guess. Do you think teams lose faith along the way sometimes? In, in, cause you, I think they question director, it. I think they question. Well, you have a, you, your job, right, is to have a yeah. vision and to help bring people along. So what do you do when people start questioning the vision and start saying, I'm not sure if I believe anymore? Well, first, I think you have to have a conversation. You have to pull, pull them aside or sometimes get people in a big room and just talk to them through the concerns. Well, first off, you have to like talk to yourself and say, like, is this the right thing for the game? Yeah. And I was very confident in the pillars of the, of, the, of, the pro, of the game we were making. I felt like we had a strong vision. I think we're initially first time being creative director. I wasn't exactly sure what were the what are all the pieces that added up to that 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 pillar, and what happened. What I realized was in the very beginning, I tried to like 
pretend like I knew everything, and that I came across as a little bit cocky. I remember, I don't know if you remember this, but I remember calling you after the first meeting with Sony. I was like, hey, how do you think it went? And you're like, could have gone better. And I was like, oh my God. And I remember I was actually, uh, a family member was visiting and I was driving back on the PCH and I was silent for about 25 minutes because I all I could make fixated. Like I had the, uh, I'm fired thought. And then, um, and then what happened was once I started realizing, okay, there, I need to lean on the people who are the experts. I need to lean on people like Jacinda, our art director, and Ryan, our game director, and John, our lead writer, and Bobby, our uh, animation director, and all the great people we have in Somniac who are, who are experts. But then what happened was, anytime we had a problem, I would just talk to those four people, and there's 80 plus other people working on the game, and they felt like they were not being part of the process. So I just had to learn that it's okay to say, I don't know. Hey guys, I need help. Because I was so concerned of like, well, I have to prove myself right off the bat. At the end of the day is they want to hear, hey, we need your help because then they feel ownership over it. And that's when just really spectacular things happen in development. At least that's how I feel. No, I think that's, and I saw you do that. I mean, that was a transformation for you. And I remember yeah. we talked a lot about different approaches to yeah. how you in involve other people in helping solve these problems. And I will say it took, it took a leadership, we remember we were doing some leadership training at Insomniac, and we had an offsite with some of the execs and the directors, but then we also had the leads did something, and then a bunch of us came, and I heard it, like, they were pretty, pretty open about how they felt about the leadership and how I was doing as a CD. And I remember taking a ton of notes. It wasn't like I completely changed who I was, but I realized, you know, I could lean on a lot more people, and and just ask, hey, here's the, here's the problem. What, how do you guys think we should solve it? Not dictate a solution. And that actually ended up being super free because A, I got to play the game way more. Um, I, some of the ideas that were coming about were fantastic and I don't think they would have happened if I was holding on as tight as I was, especially in that last year of development. Yeah. Well, let's, let's talk about that, about yeah. how ideas come about, right? So, there's an idea for a game, yeah. right? And first of all, how do you even get to the, the beginning? What do you, how do you start when you have a big game in mind, yeah. but you need to start fleshing out the pieces? I think it starts with the pillars. I think you have to, you have to pick two to four pillars that you really believe in. Okay. That, you know, like we knew we were gonna make a Spider-Man game. Okay, well, I know a lot about Spider-Man and I feel like I knew a lot about games and I knew we were gonna make an open world game. Okay. What do I want out of the narrative? What do I want out of the, the, the mechanics? What do we want out of the world, right? And then you work with a few different people bouncing off the idea, and then you solidify those. To me, that's where it all starts. And then what you hope is that when you present it to a bigger group, that they buy into it. They might not know all the details, what goes into it, but they believe in the, the big picture of vision. And then what you do is you work together to flesh out the details. Mm -hmm. And I think what happened where I made the mistake in the beginning was I felt like I needed to know the details because I wanted them to feel confident in what I was presenting, but I realized that I don't, that's where, let's get, let's get them involved and the stuff will be better than anything that we could come up with just by, you know, me or a couple other people sitting in the room. So in, when starting, just going back to that, yeah. story, mechanics. I, I can't separate the both. Okay. I can't separate them because I just, I just, I feel like any game I will ever work on, there will be a story pillar and there will be a mechanics pillar. I just think that, 
I mean, that just feels like they go hand in hand. I just don't think you can, um, especially the games that we make at Insomniac, we are known for great stories. We are known for really, really tight mechanics. So we have to think about that in mind. So that's why you make them, you know, two of them, two of the four possible pillars of a game. I thought you were going to choose one, by the way. So no, I mean, so. oh, well, I mean, obviously, you know how much I love story, yeah. and we were making a Marvel thing, so a Marvel game, so uh, that was really important. But I think that's where we we also had a lot of opportunity to grow as a studio on a yeah. story perspective because for such a long time we have made games with really, really great mechanics. But I think the Marvel movies had set a very high expectation for narrative. And I'm a super huge Marvel movie fanboy. And I, like I said, I said, I want to create a playable Marvel movie. Like it wasn't about being licensed or anything like that, but the, the fact that those, those movies, they reached more than just the Marvel fan. They were reaching anybody who wanted to go see a blockbuster movie because they were telling a very human story within this fantastic world. Iron Man 1 is great because it's a great Tony Stark story, not just a great Iron Man. Like that's to me that's the dessert, that's the icing on the cake. The 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 cake is really the Tony Stark experience and his his journey. And that's what we want to do with Peter. And I feel like out of all the superheroes, we had such an opportunity to tell a really great human story with with Peter because he's not the billionaire or a god. You uh, like Thor, you could really, really dig into someone who has flaws. And, you know, we always talked about when Peter fails, Spider-Man succeeds and vice versa. There's so much to play with there. So I was super excited. So I guess maybe it is story <laughs> as much as I'm going into it. But yeah, I just, um, so I thought we had a great opportunity to explore that and from a development studio, just get even better at, at story and telling narrative. How difficult was it to balance working on something that is a known IP yeah. and coming up with an original story, an original approach to, to the game. It, at the beginning, I, I always joke that you fanboy out and the very beginning you're like, okay, well I want this character and this villain and they're gonna do this. And I think then you kind of settle down and go, okay, what do, what, I, what was surprising to me was I assumed everybody was like me. Oh, they grew up with like action figures and cartoons and wearing Spider-Man underoos. By the way, you are by far, other than Bill Roseman, <laughs> biggest Marvel fan I know. Yeah, but he kills me in trivia. It's not even a contest. Well, uh, you yeah. have Marvel pajamas? No, I, I, but I have Spider-Man underwear. Okay. I do, I do. Um, uh, <laughs> which Bill actually bought for me. Yeah? <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, the... But I assumed everybody kind of went through like the stages of Spider-Man or stages of like a Marvel hero. Like everybody buys the action figure and uh, then they start watching cartoons as a kid. Then they finally, when they start reading, they can read comic books and then eventually become the movies. But like what I learned was like even within Insomniac, some people only read the comics. They never saw the movies. Some people only started getting into Spider-Man when they saw the same Raimi, the first set of movies. So everybody had this different perspective of who Spider-Man was and like how old he is, where does he work? And then what I realized was it didn't matter where they came in. It was like, what are the fundamental pieces that apply to all of those different iterations? You know, it's the idea of Peter's, Peter and Spider-Man's world colliding. There's really two characters that are very different. Peter is the relatable, vulnerable, like almost like cutely, the cute dork um, nerd. Uh, you know, Bill Rose maybe says like the loser at some point, and then you have Spider-Man, who's the persevering, uses humor to, uh, you know, uses humor determined, 
So like when I realized that was like the key components, it didn't matter if we made Peter 15 or 23, as long as that core DNA was the same. Yeah. So that, that gave me confidence that it didn't, people weren't gonna freak out if you know, we made MJ you know, a, you know, a, a, working at the Daily Bugle instead of an actress and stuff like that. And yes, you know what? There's gonna be people who, no matter what we do, they're gonna say, that's not my version. That's okay. Well, a good example was the very one of the very first changes was the white spider. See, yeah. Right? That was big. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that for us, that was us saying, this is Insomniac Spider-Man. It's recognizable. You know, you, like, there's no doubt when you look at that character, you know it's Spider-Man. But it's got that big white, um, the big white spider, which is really reserved for another suit. Um, and we, people instantly know, okay, that's Insomniac Spider-Man. We wanted that kind of, want to stay true to the franchise, but we also wanted to mix things up. Let's talk a little bit about fans' passion for the IP, right? Their so passion. we saw that in a lot of different forms. Yes. What were some of the more memorable moments? Well, I mean, first off was the first time we saw someone cosplaying with a suit on. Like, it was within, like, a month of revealing the game. And um, I believe it was Mike Jones of Marvel Games who was texting me pictures from a, a convention in New York where people were already cosplaying. Um, the amount of people who showed up at Comic-Con for our panel. Um, and just any... Anytime we would, one of us would wear, anybody would wear, Insomniac would wear something Spider-Man related, they would come up and just, whether it's in an outburger or, you know, waiting at the airport, people are coming up to us and he's saying how much they love the game or how much they were looking forward to it or when are you going to reveal more about it um, or when are you going to release a certain suit from a movie? You know, it's, it's, it's intense. Yeah. And, I, and now, you know, one thing, you know, asking me about what it was like before, you know, we didn't have Twitter when I was back, you know, when I was a, when I was a journalist. And now it's like they have instant, like, I mean, I wake up in the morning and there's 20 questions. Do you answer all the questions that you get? Uh, I tried. I couldn't keep up. And it was like a slippery slope. And at one point, I just, I, I, I couldn't. I couldn't. I just, it was too hard. And what happened was I realized that the more I would answer, the more I would get. So I was just, it was, I feel really bad. I try to at least like or, you know, give a thumbs up or something like that. But it, like a long I couldn't. I couldn't keep up. I'm still. I'm impressed. I mean, it is. It is a lot of. But I also. That's like. That's a cue I've seen from other people in my position. Like you know, like Corey, the director on God of War. He's really good at responding to people. And I'm like, well, if Corey's doing it, I better start doing it. <laughs> um, uh, but I think that that. But it's also. It's a great way to interact with fans. You know, like somebody took, um, created their like just this weekend. Somebody with their friend wrote VO where they pretended they were Peter talking while they're swinging. They took their time. I'm like, how could I not comment or write back and say great job when they took something we worked on and wanted to make it their own? You know, it's just, it's, and that's pretty special yeah. to see that kind of interaction. And if it just takes me a few minutes to kind of say, hey, great job, um, let's do it. So what's it like being a meme? Uh, it's, uh, oh, by the way, if you guys haven't seen it, Brian's out there and people make memes of him, which is great. I love the one where they're kind of zooming in on your face or your, yeah. I don't know, some random expression. Is it, yeah, where I have like the, red, the backwards yeah. red hat on, yeah. Well, I was from a game, it's from a Game Informer interview where they, of course, they snapped it. Um, and, you know, it's, I think it's, I think, I think work has more fun of it because what happens on our Slack channel, you know, you can have a little picture and some people will actually use that meme as their, as their, because they know they're messaging me, so right. I'll see it, I'm like, oh, oh my God. So like, we had a couple QA guys and uh, environment artist Trey used it, so, um, but it's good fun, like, I think, I'd rather have them do that than like saying they don't like the games. So, oh, I, yeah, I, I, I'll, t I'll take that any day of the week. That's great. So, so getting back to production. So when, when you are in the, when we're in the middle of production, right, and you're running a very complicated project, what happens when things break? 
And what kinds of things break in production? Every single thing. <laughs> oh, oh, come on. <laughs> but I mean, I mean, a lot of things break. I mean, it could be, it could be as simple as the story's not clicking for people. Um, it could be that, I mean, we, you know, I mean, first, I feel like we went through, like, each big element of the game went through different, like, breaking points, right? Like, at first it was, like, traversal. We wanted to make, our goal was, like, make you feel like Spider-Man right away. Like, as soon as possible, like, swinging should be accessible, and really, it shouldn't be a barrier. It shouldn't feel, it should be as natural, even more natural than driving, right? But we had a lot of instances where, like, in the beginning, like, you're slamming in a wall, and you just stop. Okay, so we had to solve that one, and that took a while. And then it was story, and we had a lot of ups and downs on the story side, because... We were pushing for something really, really hard. It wasn't just a typical superhero experience where you just see Peter as Spider-Man for 95% of the time. We wanted to tell the Peter side as well, which was very challenging. So how did that click? And then having villains that weren't, that were believable had their own motivations. So that went through iterations all the way almost probably till the last six months of development. Then the last thing was combat. And I remember like, you know, we did the Game Informer story in, was it March? And we were doing a huge combat push up into that point. So I feel like we all had those, those moments where it was almost like we got, pro we got a problem here. And what was great was that every single time we hit that and like it was like a low point, the team rallied and per persevered, like kind of like Spider-Man would, right? And, we, and sometimes it takes that moment of like, it's real bad to finally break through and get, and get that. Yeah. And I, so that, I think that's the, you don't, you don't wish for those moments, but they're going to happen multiple times. And just, you know, me going forward, it's like, okay, we're going to get to that point. It's going to happen, but we know we can also break through it. And I think we can look back and, you know, if there's new team, new team members or, you know, people just coming out of college, we can say it's going to be okay. So I just think it's going through it, finding a way to persevere, working together on a solution. And uh, we're going to, it's going to come again and we, we know we can do it. So you said that, in, in, in those, I mean, I know that personally watching you do this, you played the game a lot. A lot. Right? And that helped identify the issues. So what, how did your technique for telling somebody this isn't good enough evolve over production? And where do you think it really, what's the best way? Well, to do you want to know where it's, how it started originally with yeah. me uh, screaming about gold trash cans in a meeting, that we had too many gold trash cans in the fee shelter, and then that, I was like, I was just, because uh, I thought that was a big detail, right? I was like, there cannot be gold trash cans in this. And there was a point where, like, our, one of our old environment artists, like, just started putting gold trash cans and screenshots and sending them to me. Um, but then I, you know, I... Wait, I don't at, understand, though, why there shouldn't have been gold trash cans in Feast. I don't know. I don't know why there were, but, you know... But why, why should I overreacted. I mean, I over maybe somebody made the decision that gold... I mean, not literally gold, but just gold colored would be okay. No, no, that's okay. my bugaboo. I can't, I can't, exactly. I can't deal with gold trash cans. The hard decisions. Yeah, I doubt. They, they weren't supposed to be in that set. Anyway, you're giving me PTSD. Um, <laughs> the, uh, I, the, <laughs> sorry, now you got me distracted. Gold, gold trash cans. But then I, I looked at how I wrote feedback. Like you know, we, you know, what I would do is I would play the game. Like I would do like a three-day sprint. Like I would just play as fast as I could. And usually what I would do is like, especially the three-day weekends we would have, and I would write everything in Excel sheet. And I would look at the tone of how I wrote things, and I tried to understand that like, this is gonna, might go in blind, right? And we say might go in, we, we put our comments into our bug database, and so people yeah. will read them, and it's really sometimes easy to forget that the there's way a, there's a tone associated with yeah, how you write and it's and I don't mean to write it like that, but when you're on your, you know, it's, you know, you know, our campaign was 20 plus hours and I'm, you know, doing, you know, second day in a row till, you know, 
you know, whatever, midnight and on a Saturday or something like that. And I'm like, why isn't this fixed yet? And I can, you can see how it can go sideways. But then I think for the big things, that's when you just have something like just do in person. And I, by the end of the project, especially when there was so many things going on and I knew someone was getting maybe a lot of feedback or a lot of bugs, I would just pull them over. Like we had um, these research stations and um, the designer did a great job reusing our mechanics in really interesting ways. But he just kind of, you know, just we happened to be doubling up on objectives. And I was like, oh, I was like, oh you don't need this part, just delete it. And I, we just were having like a miscommunication over email. And so I eventually just called him over. I'm like, hey, this part, just delete them all and you're good. So I just kind of, and also like, and I was trying to, while I was doing it, I was trying to iterate, like, these are really, really great. Just remove this one part you don't need anymore. So I just evolved over time. But like, I wasn't always great. I mean, I, I remember emailing you over 4th of July weekend because it was like, Scott Mahalik, our lead PM, was like, you're wrapping up feedback and emailing you go, I don't, I don't know if we're going to do it. I, I, I've seen too many bugs. And of course, it got solved and everything was fine. This, but, was, uh, the, this was right before we were shipping the game. Yeah, like, and so. like right yeah. before. And I knew I was going on a preview tour in like two weeks. And then pretty much I was, they were not going to let me have any more yeah. bugs after that. So, um, but at that point too, it's just like trusting your team. Like, I've known Scott since he was 15 years old. Actually, I hired him at that software, et cetera. Scott's our project manager. Project manager. Right. And uh, I knew he would bring it home, and that's what he did. Yeah. So how do you, so, so what we're talking about, a lot of the sort of the emotional aspects of development, because it is emotional, right? People are yeah. very, we're passionate about what we do, and we're connected to what we make, and it's sometimes it's difficult to hear feedback. And, and sometimes the tone on the team shifts. So how do you keep your finger on the pulse of the team? How do you understand how people in general are feeling? Uh, I talked to a lot of the leads and other directors and asking how their things are going. And you just walk around and talk to people. Yeah. It's, we're, I think that one of the great things about Insomniac is that people aren't afraid to express how they feel. So it doesn't take a ton of digging sometimes. Um, and then you just ask them, like, okay, let's, what are your concerns? And they just come up and say it. And so. I didn't have to dig a lot, but I would just either A, ask directors or fellow leads, and then also just, a lot of people just came up to me because they were, uh, we have a really passionate studio, and they're like, I don't think this is good, or why are we doing this? And then you have to answer. And it's almost like, a, it's like if you can't come up with a great answer, then maybe maybe we shouldn't, as a director, maybe, I shouldn't be, maybe we shouldn't be doing this. It's kind of like a nice little like reality check or gut check. Um, so it's great that we have a team that's that passionate because they're almost like, kind of testing you a little bit about whether you really believe in this. And if you don't, maybe it's maybe we should cut it. Well so what so this is this is a putting really putting you on the spot. So you get feedback coming in from a lot of different places. Lots. Right? So we've got the team, we've got yep. usability feedback, yep. we've got our friends at Sony, we've got Marvel. Mm -hmm. Right? How do you balance all that? How do you your your job as a creative director is to make the big decisions about which way we're going on various things. So one thing we do, one thing we got in the habit of after after actually having a lot of that leadership training was be very transparent. Get all the feedback out to everybody. Um, so that was one thing. Let, let everybody see what the feedback was. And, and then also just sitting down with certain people on the team and going through it and saying, okay, you know, what I noticed there was a trend of like maybe a third of it or, you know, maybe half of it we were already going to be working on. Um, and then some of, maybe, maybe a quarter of it was like, yes, but later. And then maybe a quarter of it or a third of it was like, whoa, we didn't see that at all. Because what I think was great is we had outside perspective, people who weren't living it every single day at the studio. And then we would just kind of say, what's the priority now? Are, are our priorities 
um, what we think internally are the right ones versus what other people are saying. And then maybe we just say, hey, we're gonna hit this stuff later, or no, actually, what they're bringing up is really important, we should, we should move it up. So it just, it changed day, uh, you know, milestone by milestone or you know, build by build, but I think that was the best thing. And like, again, not, not having me be the person that helped dig through all of it, you know, like, you know, Ryan Smith, he's sitting right there, um, my game director, and you know, leaning on him and you know, all the, our lead designer and Jacinda, our director, and everybody else going, how do you guys feel about this? And getting in a room and saying, okay, here are the priorities. I mean, especially when it came to story, John Paquette, our story lead, we would we get a ton of feedback. I'd go, John, all right, what do, what do we think? Here's what I think. He, and then we and then we kind of compare our notes and then move forward. Were, were there times, though, where you just had to say, look, guys, this is what my gut's telling me. I just want to go this way, yeah. go against the team, or go against... No, I think one thing we... I think there was a little... I think when the story was still not totally there, I think there were concerns about, was the story going to be funny enough? And do we have to add more humor? And I think what happened was we knew more was coming. It was just kind of wasn't in the game yet. And I said, no, we're going to be totally fine. I remember I that. We I remember there were a lot yeah. of concerns about we're going to make a serious Spider-Man game. And that wasn't going to And work. I think, and again, our thing was we had learned through the process of like, when you're making, you know, everybody's like, oh, Spider-Man's funny. He's going to quip left and right. We're like, well, we're making like a 40-hour game. He can't quip that much. It's too many quips. But we said like, we can write very situational humor to that exact moment, and that'll help carry us through m multiple times in the game. So we said, um, so we went that way. But then sometimes, like, what was really we were really fortunate was we had the story we we wanted. Then there were some things weren't some things weren't there, but we actually went back and did some uh, reshoots, and we actually found moments that were already in the game where we could literally just add a 15 second sequence to the end of a certain uh, uh, scene or um, something at the beginning or um, you know, luckily get it time time to expand something. And uh, that helped at the end of the day. Like one thing I will go going forward is like, just plan for reshoots and just extra things. Like if it's fine, just it's, it's gonna save you at the end of the day. That's one of the biggest lessons I learned because it's just, when you're working on a 20 plus hour story, it's really hard to see it literally unfold just on paper on a storyboard. So you have to actually play plan, it. Okay, so that's great advice, right? But when yeah. you say plan for reshoots, you're saying, okay, let's just carve out 20% of what we would normally make for the story and just leave that for reshoots. Sounds a good way to say it, right? Yeah. Yeah, I'm, yeah I think... I guess I, the scope the scope challenge is a big one yeah. for us where we, yeah. you know, you, you want to plan for failure. You want to yeah. leave room for experimentation. And, and so where's, where's the line? You as a former project manager have wrestled with this as well. Uh, I think that, uh, God, it's a great question because <laughs> I don't want to use, nice. no, yeah, I don't want to use, no, no. Um, I think that the way I used to project manager was, be a project manager was, I used a schedule to help me figure out our roadmap and where we were in the process, but I didn't live and die by it because I knew that the game was going to change and evolve over time, but I used it to help make a decision about like going to the creative directors like Drew and Marcus who were the creative directors on Sunset Overdrive. I was their lead producer. And I would, I would say, hey, here's what's going on. Here's options. Here's what we can do. Um, because I played through the game as well and I was like, we got, we got a problem here. And I would try to arm them with as much information as possible so we could make a schedule slash scope slash game quality. And that's what, you know, my relationship with Scott was very similar. Um, so that's how I liked it. I think 
the schedule provides a roadmap, but you, some way I feel like you can't totally live by every single second because it's going to change. Yeah. Um, and it's going to evolve. And I think if I always, my line is you have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable sometimes. And um, I know that probably drives some producers crazy, but that's the only way. I mean, these games are so volatile in a way that you have to be, you have to be ready for change. And um, the good news is all our project managers rallied, um, whether internally, externally, and totally supported when we had to make changes at the very, I mean, I mean we were shooting new scenes in the spring, you know, and to get that kind of support from Sony as well was unbelievable. I mean, like, I just said, we got to do these things and, you know, Connie and Grady and Mark and Ara and Joe, all of our Sony, our Sony people, they were like, go for it. And that's the last I ever heard of it. And we just went and did it. And that is unbelievable to have that kind of support. It's, it's one of the, the, you know, having a partner like Sony on this project was, it's one of the reasons why it's so good. Agreed. Yes. So when you think about um, it, taking forward the knowledge from having been creative director on Spider-Man, what are a couple things that you want to do differently and, or even better on the next projects? And I, I will, I'll also couch this as, as advice for other creative directors who may be moving on to projects that are larger in scale or different. I will say on the narrative side of things, I love what we did on Spider on Spider Man, and that we had a we nailed that human story within a superhero uh, adventure. But I always struggled with boiling the sentence, the story down to a simple sentence. Mm. And you know, I thought we had great themes of partnership and mentorship. But if someone goes, "What's the story about?" I'd have to give them a paragraph. So whatever what project I work on next, I want to be able to boil the the story down to a simple sentence that people can really just capture and keep in their head. So when they are working on the project, it's it's that foundational, that backbone that provides the experience. So on that as well, I think it's a big one for me. It's just really boiling down the story to something, um, you know, something John Paquette always talks about is a simple story, complex characters. So what is that? What is that simple story that you're trying to tell? I think if you look at some of the great games out there, um, story-driven games, they have that that simple, that, that one sentence you could just bullet it down to. Um, on the mechanic side, I think it's just fulfilling the fantasy of whatever character you're creating. You know, for us with a Spider-Man, it was like, he's gotta be, swing has gotta be amazing. And the, and the mechanics, and nailing that as soon as possible because those mechanics are gonna impact progression and customization and mission design and all those things. And the longer you go without defining those, it's going to keep those other things in flux and you're not going to have, you know, it's going to, it's going to have to do some, you know, going back and fixing things up based on what the character does. And then just think about, um, think about your world. What kind of world do you want to create? You know, what's the, what's the tone that you want to, you want to create within the story or of just, you know, playing the game, playing, swing, um, you know, I will always go back to Spider-Man. What's it like when you're swinging around our, that world? So I think, you know, for me, those are the, the really the big things and just, um, Lean, lean on your team, like just we, you, you know, I, we are. I'm very fortunate in Somac to have people who are a lot smarter than me, and to lean on them and let them help drive the vision that you have. Because end of the day, it's going to be a better experience for that. That's great advice. So when you look ahead to where the industry is going, what do you want to see change? I think the. I mean, I'm a big story guy, so I think for me is I want to see more games that are tackling um, t 
topics that may be a little bit more, um, I, I want to say controversial, but just a little bit more may cause people to disagree on certain things or um, that may ask questions that we need to start asking. I mean, you look at, go to, you go to social media every day, you see another story about something happening in the world. Well, I hope we have more games that start to explore those types of topics. Um, I know it's something I'm very interested in. For example, like, um, just for example, um, I'm very interested in religion. Um, you know, more games that talk about spirituality and w why do you believe in something and why is there so much hate and because of we believe in two different things. Um, like, just more more things that like that. Um, and, I, I, and, I, and I'm not saying that there aren't games that are doing that today, but I want to see more games tackle harder subjects um, and provide a, an, a, a perspective or show multiple sides of it and let people kind of talk about it. You know, my favorite thing to do, my favorite thing in the whole world is to go out with a group of friends and just have dinner. And not just have dinner for like an hour, like three hours and just talk about life and see what makes people click and take in some of the things that people talk about, whether it's their personal or what's going on in the world and seeing more of that stuff injected into our games. That's a big thing for me. That's great. Yeah. Do you, do you think players are evolving? Do you think players are, are interested in those messages and getting and going deeper with the themes? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Amy was up here earlier saying like, it doesn't need to be either or. There is a group of, and there's a group of players right now that love those story-based single-player games. I would imagine that audience would, would, you know, would like something like that. It doesn't mean the person who doesn't, who, you know, say only plays like a Fortnite, right? Uh, I hope they will give those games a chance, but I think that our society is starting to ask, you know, I talked about the why. Well, I feel like, you know, from journalists, like we, we need to sh show more of that in our games, the why, and ask people to dig into topics that may be a little bit uncomfortable. Like even me mentioning the word, I got a little uncomfortable mentioning religion because I know it's a very sensitive subject, right? Yeah. Um, but I want to explore that. I want to I learn more about it. I want to understand why um, there is so much hate around something like religion, um, depending on where you live in the world, right? Um, I just think that's, that's something, because I think we'll grow as a society if we, and gain new perspectives if we start to explore those somewhat uncomfortable topics. That's great. Thanks. Well, for you are obviously very active on social media, but for anybody who doesn't know how to get in touch with Brian, you want to share your Twitter handle? Yeah, it's just Brian Intahar. It's just my first name with a Y. Brian with a Y, it's the right way to spell it. And it's Intahar, I-N-T-I-H-A-R. It's not many Brian Intahars in the world, so right. it won't be hard to find. Cool. Well, Brian, thank you. Thank Appreciate you for having me. This has been great. All right. Thank you all. Thank you for joining us for the Game Makers Notebook. For more information on the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, our podcasts, and our other initiatives, please visit www.interactive.org.